in the book of Ruth. That was a good word last week. It was good to have Michael and Kelly here. Uh, it's good to see them and have them in town and hear him uh, be able to speak again and bring that word. I think it was really timely. Um, obviously, you know, bracing for impact. Uh, there's a lot happening around us right now. There's a lot spinning around us. Uh, but it's also important to remember that in these type of times that we are the ones that need to go out and make an impact um, in society and the people that we are around and the circles of influence that we have. Uh, but back in to the book of Ruth this week, um, years ago I was having lunch with a, a business colleague of mine who really became a good friend and he was a, an elderly gentleman and um, he had two adult daughters, they were twins, and we were having lunch one day because he had lost one of them in a car wreck, tragically. And so we were sitting there and I was trying to console him as much as I could. And so then fast forward a couple years later and we went through our loss and we're having lunch again. And he said, Nathan, when somebody is going through grief, they need three things. They need something to do, somewhere to go, and someone to love. And so he had given me some materials and we had talked about that a little bit. I would add that we also need Jesus Christ first and foremost above everything else. Um, but we don't need to be idle. And what we find here is that Ruth, her and Naomi come back to Bethlehem. They're in a bad spot. They're grieving. They're destitute. And Ruth says, listen, I need something to do. And I need somewhere to go because there's someone that I love. And she's got Naomi at home. And so she heads out into the fields to try to scrape up whatever she can, literally, uh, to try and help feed themselves. That's where we left her last week. Last week we talked about scan, or two weeks ago uh, now, we talked about scandalous grace and our hero, Boaz, how he had treated her and extended uh, grace to Ruth that just happened to be standing in his field gleaning. He goes up to Ruth and he talks to her and says, listen, don't leave my field. Stay here. I want to provide for you practically as well as socially because to stay next to my young women. Stay next to them. Don't fall behind. Uh, not only was he providing for her practically and also socially, but he wanted to offer her protection. He had instructed his servants, listen, don't touch her. Uh, leave her alone. In fact, when she comes over here, I want you guys to draw water for her, which was totally backwards. It wasn't, didn't happen that way. Uh, foreign women were drawing water for the men. Uh, and he says... I want you guys to do that for her. And in the, in the course of these conversations, she is just blown away by his kindness. And she says, why have I found favor in your sight? And, you know, I think that word why is one of the most powerful words that we have. Um, because it leads us, or it's meant to lead us, to God. Um, it can really kind of drive us crazy if it leads us anywhere else. Because we ask the question, why is there so much suffering in the world? Why? Is there so much evil? And, you know, obviously that is due to um, Adam, to our, he was our champion. Adam was the best of us, and he dropped the ball. Um, he bombed out. It was the ultimate Adam bomb when he bombed out in the garden. And so that happened. Sin came into the world. That was a good one. Okay. <laughs> Sin came into the world. And so we asked, well, like, what's God going to do about it? And he tells us, listen, a savior is coming, a Messiah, somebody that's going to crush the head of the serpent. But that's, that's an important one. Why have we found favor in his sight? But Boaz had heard all about her. He had heard everything that she had done for Naomi, for his relative, and how she had left her land and come to a land of people that were not her own. 
And in the, in the Jewish commentary of the Old Testament, that Midrash that we talked about, that there was a, um, it said that literally she was a princess of Moab. So in Moab, in this evil country, uh, she was royalty when she left there, left all that death, the place where her husband and her father-in-law died, came to Bethlehem uh, with God's people uh, to become part of their people. And Boaz tells her, I know all about it. I've heard all about you. Um, and then he says a prayer over her. He says, listen, may the Lord repay you for what you've done, for how you've acted, for what you've uh, done with Naomi. And may a full reward be given to you because you've come here to take shelter under God's wings. And, you know, the interesting thing is that prayer, the answer to that prayer is Boaz himself. He doesn't know it at that point, but he's praying, you know, the Lord bless you, the Lord repay you, may you have a good reward. And her reward actually is Boaz. And we talked about how Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and he ever lives to make intercession for us. He's praying for you and me. That's a comforting thought. When we are freaking out about life, when we're wondering what's going to happen, when we think, okay, Jesus is not worried. He's not concerned. He's not sweating it out on whether or not we're going to make it. He's praying for us. He prayed for Peter. He said, Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that you're going to make it, that you're going to be okay. And he was okay. So Jesus is praying for you and me. We're going to be okay. Uh, we end it off again. Ruth is just blown away, and she falls at his feet and says, I found favor in your eyes, and you've spoken kindly to me, even though I'm not one of your servants. But the implication is there, I want to be one of your servants, right? I'm going to put myself under your lordship. Um, Boaz, we have this man, Boaz, a man of godly devotion, who's coming up to Ruth. So she's coming out of pagan idolatry, comes up to her, and offers her provision and protection. Uh, he sees her for who she is on the inside, not just this Moabite on the outside that's cursed. And that's a good parallel, right, for how the Lord sees us. Um, I just always think back to Samuel when God says, go anoint a new king. And he goes to Jesse and says, bring out all your sons. And they all walk in and he looks at the oldest and he's the tallest and he's handsome and he looks very kingly. Um, and he says, man, this must, get, this must be God's anointed. But God says, I project to him. Man looks at the outward appearance, but I look at the heart. And just like God looks at the heart, he doesn't care what we look like on the outside. Um, so he offers us protection too. And it's easy to think, I don't feel like I'm very protected. You know, I feel like, in fact, that I'm being attacked on all sides right now. I feel like, you know, life sometimes is just unraveling. It's unraveling. It's falling apart. Um, remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how it's okay for people to see our brokenness. It's okay for people to see that. It's okay for them to know that we're crackpots, right? That the treasure that we have inside of us is not on the outside. We talked about 2 Corinthians 4, 7. So we'll turn there and then we will read actually the second half of that uh, because the first part talks about how we are crackpots. So this is 7 through 11. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus Christ, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So why do we go under attacks? Why are we attacked? Why are we 
um, under oppression so that the life of Jesus can may be made manifest in our life. So we may feel like our external circumstances are messed up. We may feel like we're in attack there, but inside that is where Jesus is working and renewing our spirit man. Okay. We're not promised a smooth ride, obviously. We know that. Jesus said that. But Jesus told his disciples, don't fear the one that can hurt your body. Don't fear the one that can destroy your body. Fear the one that can actually destroy your soul. Okay, fear God. Fear the attacks. Fear, you know, falling into the trap of Satan. But don't fear anything that you can happen on your, on your external circumstances. Um, your, mo your boat right now might be getting rocked by life. Might be going through a storm. Uh, but the important question is, Who's in your boat? Right? Who's in the boat with you? Because if Jesus is in the boat with you, you're going to make it to the other side. Um, Jesus, we have a story of when he came to the disciples walking on the water. That was a cool one. In another story, he actually gets in the boat with the disciples and says, let's go over to the other side. And so Jesus goes to the front of the boat. He's laying on a cushion. He's got a beanbag in the boat, apparently. And he's falling asleep. And all of a sudden, a huge storm rises up. And they're freaked out. Now, these are a group of fishermen who have grown up on this sea fishing, and they're freaked out. So this is a supernatural storm that's happening on the sea. And so they're freaking out, and they wake Jesus up, and they're like, listen, don't you care that we're drowning here? And I've, I've prayed that prayer. I don't know about you. I have prayed that prayer before. You look up to God, and you're like, I'm drowning here. Don't you care about this stuff that's going on in my life? And Jesus stands up. He's like, why are you so afraid? Like, where's your faith? And he says the same thing to you and I too. Where's your faith? I said, we're going to the other side. I didn't say, let's try to make it to the other side. I didn't say, let's see if we can go to the other side. I said, we're going to the other side. We're not going halfway. And to you and me, he says, it's going to be okay. You're going to make it to the other side. You're going to have storms. You're going to have all kinds of things happen to you in your life. But I'm in the boat, and we're going to make it to the other side. He hasn't abandoned us. Amen? Amen. All right, let's read our portion in Ruth today. We're going to do 2, 14 through 23. So at mealtime, Boaz said, said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed over the roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. And when she roasted lean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out from some of the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. And her mother-in-law saw that she had gleaned, and she also brought out and gave to her what she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi said to her, This man is a close relative of ours. He's one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close to by my young men until they have finished my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, my daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. All right. So after Boaz has this initial conversation with Ruth, uh, it's lunchtime. 
And he tells her, says, come here, sit next to me. This is a big deal. It's a big deal that she got invited. It's a big deal that she got invited to sit next to him. Um, in those days, when people would have meals, uh, they would invite people. And when they got there, they would have these low tables that they would sit around. Usually they were in a U-shape. And the host would sit at the head. And whoever sat closest to the host was shown more honor. It was kind of like, um, well, this is a funny example, but if you've ever watched Seinfeld, sorry. Um, in one of the episodes, uh, this one lady has a, you remember the speed dial phones, you know, and you had the different numbers for speed dial. And the higher up the speed dial you were, the more important you were. So it was kind of like a relationship barometer is what they were calling it. And so in these, in these meals too, when people would come in, the closer you got to sit to the host, the more important you were. And so in Luke 14, uh, Jesus has been invited to the house of a Pharisee for dinner, uh, as happened. I don't think he ever turned down a free meal. It's probably a good, probably a good lesson. But he gets, he gets to go to the Pharisee's house, and he is watching everybody as they're shuffling in and how they're looking to try to jockey and get to the places of honor. And he says this in verse 8. This is verse 8 through verse 11. When you're, so everybody sits down, right? Everybody's looking for the good spots. They sit down, they start eating, and Jesus says this. When you're invited to someone, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give this place to this person, and you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So Boaz has already shown great kindness to Ruth. Now he invites her over the table to eat and asks her to sit beside him. This keeps getting better. And then he says, take the bread and dip it into the wine. What does this make you think of? This is pretty obvious, right? Communion is what it makes you think of. This is a pretty good, pretty good example of communion. I titled this one, Come and See. Um, a lot of times when you hear that, it has to do with vision, uh, but I'm going to go for some bullet points this morning. I started reading through this, I saw some themes, I said I'm going to call this Come and See because some of the themes that run through this, but when we think of vision, as far as Come and See, uh, when we, and this is important in this story too, as we're going through Ruth, because we see God's fingerprints all over it. Uh, vision is really just seeing our circumstances, seeing our life through the lens of God's Word. Like, what does He say about it? Because um, oftentimes we see our situations not as they are, but as we are. We come with our own set of prejudices and, um, you know, our background, our history, our experiences. And so vision is seeing things through God's eyes. And if we want to change the way that we see things, then we need to pick up the word and read what God says about it and apply that to our lives. But our first point today is communion. Uh, sharing a meal in that culture was very significant. Obviously, it's still to a large degree right now. Anytime you wanted to go out to eat with somebody, you want to get to know them better. But because of people's selfishness, because of their pride, it turned into a popularity contest, turns into more of a reputation. Um, and so they were more, consent, more concerned with their reputation than they were relationship. Uh, if somebody invited you, uh, you could go tell somebody else, I got invited to this party, and probably the next question would be, how close did you sit? Right? Jesus has called us into relationship. He doesn't care at all about our reputation. Um, he's called us to go out and live out his word. And he even told us that's going to cost you some stuff. It might even cost you your reputation. People might think 
you're a little off-center. You might think you're weird. That's okay. In Revelations chapter 3, uh, we talked about this a little while ago, but in Revelations chapter 3, you have Jesus here talking to John, uh, telling him to write these letters. And in chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus is talking about this kind of relationship. And he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. In the book of Revelation, there are letters that are being written to different churches uh, in that region. And Jesus is telling John what to write. And he's, he's written this one, this portion of scripture, to the church in Laodicea. And we talked about this church before, but this is the lukewarm church. And so this letter really could be written to the church in America. Uh, we are very much a lukewarm church, unfortunately. Uh, we've grown a little bit lax. And so earlier um, in this chapter 3, in verse 15 actually, he writes, chapter 3, verse 15, to the church in Laodicea, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Um, basically, you guys don't hate me, but you don't love me either. You say you follow me, but there's no follow-through. Right? There's no real relationship. I know your works, and it makes me sick. Uh, but here's the good news. There's hope. There's always hope. He says, listen, all you have to do is open the door. I'm standing here. I'm knocking. All you have to do is open the door. I'll come in, spend some time with me, and you'll get fired up again. That's the way it's going to happen. We serve the God of the second chance. Amen. Right? And the third chance and the fourth chance. Amen. Thank God. Uh, in, in Matthew 26, we see Jesus. Uh, another, another picture. Uh, this is actually where we get communion. There's a couple different times throughout the Old Testament where we see communion happening. We see it with Abraham. And then we see it here in Ruth. And then in Matthew 26, we see Jesus in the evening with his disciples taking the Passover meal. And we talk about how he told them, listen, go into town and you're going to find a man there carrying a water jug. Which doesn't sound very interesting, but it would have stood out to them. There weren't a lot of men carrying water jugs. So when you see him, watch the house that he enters, go in and ask the master of the house, where is the place where we can take communion? I, I wish more was written about the guy that owned that place. That would have been really cool. I don't know who it was, but he already had a room prepared. And I think you could do a whole sermon on that, being prepared. Because you don't know when Jesus is going to show up. Being prepared to host him. And so, in Matthew 26, this is where we get just our formal and, and you know, where we'll talk about uh, communion later in the service. 26, 20 through 25. So when it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. As he were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say one to another, Is it I, Lord? And he answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. And the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he'd never been born. And Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You said it. Um, somebody had asked me once, they said, Do you think that you know Judas was sorry afterwards? Do you think Judas will be in heaven. I said, no. Because it says here, it would have been better for him if he had never even been born. So, um, he's not going to be there. But, 
This is interesting because in John's gospel, John tells us that he was the one that was actually reclining against Jesus at this Last Supper. So they had these low tables, they had cushions, they would kind of recline and eat there, and John calls himself the one who Jesus loved. Very subtle. I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. And actually, somebody posted this, I thought it was hysterical, uh, this hypothetical situation where John and Peter, right, they find out that Jesus has risen from the dead, and they're running to the tomb, and John gets there first. He, told, he tells us that he got there first. And, and John says, you know, I beat it. I won. I got you. And Peter's like, who cares? Who's going to know? He's like, everyone will know. <laughs> because he's going to write it in his gospel. I'm going to tell everybody that I got there first. But he's reclining against Jesus. And then we find out who's on the other side of him. Judas. He says, the one that dips with me in the ditch. John is sitting on one side. Who else can reach the ditch? Judas. And so Judas is either offered or has taken this spot of honor right next to Jesus. I think it's interesting because Jesus gave him every opportunity right up until the end. He even approaches him in the garden and he says, friend. He calls Judas friend. Give him every opportunity to turn to him, to commune with him, but instead he turned against him. And he's invited you and I in a relationship to commune with him, um, reading our Bibles, praying, talking with other believers. Um, you know, I've heard before, you know, I don't, I'm not very good at praying. You know, I don't know how to pray. Well, thank God, it doesn't depend on the one who's praying. It depends on the one who's listening. Right? right? It's his power that changes things. Um, a great place to start is the Lord's Prayer. Right? I mean, his disciples ask him, how should we pray? I think that's interesting because they didn't ask us, you know, teach us how to walk on water. Uh, they didn't say, teach us how to do miracles, how to heal people. They said, we know that when he gets away and prays, that's where his power comes from. And I think that uh, we lack a lot of power in the church, in our lives today, because we neglect praying. And a good place to start is the Lord's Prayer, if you're wondering. That's free. Okay, back to Ruth. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed her the roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. Not only did she get to sit next to Boaz, but she was also sitting next to the reapers. Now, I'm spending too much time here, but I think it's important, because in Matthew 13, Jesus is telling a bunch of parables, and he tells us one that's called the parable of the weeds, or in some translations, called the parable of the wheat and the tares. Um, Matthew 13. Let's see if I can get there. Oh, how about that? 13, 24 through 30. And it says, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And so when the plants came up and bore grain, his weeds also appeared. And the servants of the master of the house came to him and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Do you want us to go out and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. So let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but we'll gather the wheat into my barn. And then skip down here to verse 36, where he explains the parable. Uh, then he says that he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds. And he said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom, and the weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest at the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. So as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels, 
and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace in that place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So, not only does she get to sit next to Boaz, she gets to sit next to the reapers. Interesting fact about these weeds, these tares, in that culture, when they were raising up the wheat, these tares looked almost identical to the wheat themselves. Um, I mean, why else would he say, don't gather them up now, because in gathering up the weeds, you might pull up some of the wheat too. If they didn't look like wheat, that wouldn't be too difficult. So you've got this field here full of the sons of God, right? Which is what the wheat represents. And then you have these weeds that have been sown by the enemy. But they look exactly like the sons of God. These are people in the church, okay, that look like Christians, may even talk like Christians. Okay, but they have no desire, zero interest in having a relationship with Jesus, with communing with him. And that is a real danger in the church. When we're close to Jesus, when we're communing with him, you're also beside the angels. Why does that matter? Well, it tells us in Hebrews 1 that they are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. That's what the angels are doing. They're ministering to you and I and to the people that are to inherit salvation. Interesting because what is Ruth going to be experiencing here pretty soon? She's going to be experiencing salvation, right? Her Savior, her Redeemer, Boaz, is going to rescue her. So she ate until she was satisfied. She had some left over. God is a giver, okay? And we need to be like him. In the 23rd Psalm, it's, it's probably the most famous Psalm, uh, and I, I'm thinking about maybe going through the 23rd Psalm next. Um, I love it. But at the end of it, as David, who was a shepherd, is writing the 23rd Psalm, and it's telling us all about the good shepherd and what he does, he says at the end, my cup overflows, right? Mark and Christy, they're not here, so I can talk about them. <laughs> uh, they named their coffee shop Overflow. And, you know, I, one of the reasons, when you spend time communing, when you spend time together, when you spend time with the Lord, you're going to have more than enough. And what's inside of you is going to come bubbling out. See, you can't, you can't give out what's not inside of you. But what's inside of you is going to come out eventually. Uh, there's three questions that you could ask that will give you some insight as to what's inside of you and what's inside of other people. And those three questions are, what makes you laugh? What makes you angry? And what makes you weep? What makes you laugh? What makes you angry? And what makes you weep? You can ask those things of yourself or even other people. You're going to find out a lot about what's been feeding you, what's inside, and what's probably going to come out. Okay. Back to Ruth. Verse 15. This is 15 and 16. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So technically, by law, they were only supposed to glean on the edges. The edges of the fields, and then also whatever the people, the, the reapers, missed on their first pass. They could go through, make their first pass, but they couldn't go back around a second time. They were supposed to leave that for the poor. And so here she goes uh, to try to go behind them, and he says, take some out on purpose and leave it for her. God, sometimes God just drops things in our lap for no reason at all other than just his mercy and his grace. And we just have to look up and say, God, thank you. 
Um, there's been times where, uh, let's say, our washing machine, you know, broke. Uh, but a few days earlier, we got like an extra $500. And we're like, sweet, what are we gonna do with $500? Two days later, washer breaks. <laughs> I guess that's what we're doing with that extra $500. That's not what I wanted to use it on, but God just dropped it in our lap for that, just because, you know, to be gracious. Uh, the next point is contribution. Uh, giving outside of ourselves, right? Giving generously. The workers here really could have protested. I mean, they could have said, you want us to leave some out for that Moabite woman on purpose? Like, we've been out here all day in the sun, and you're not, you're not leaving anymore for us. But grace isn't fair, right? Grace isn't fair. It's getting something that you don't deserve. Jesus told his disciples, he said, freely you have received, now go out and freely give. Uh, we need to be those, because we are so richly blessed, that go out and find people and contribute to the kingdom. And I'm not, even, I'm not even really talking about tithing. I'm talking about the people that are in your sphere of life, that come into contact with you, that are in your path, that you, on purpose, pull out handfuls, right, and contribute to them, either physically or emotionally or spiritually. Okay, that's part of what we're supposed to do as Christians, living with an open hand. Uh, for those of you that have kids, you've witnessed this process where, you know, your kids, you buy them a toy, right? You buy them something. They play with it for, like, three days, and then they lose interest until, what? Until their sibling picks it up, right? Somebody else picks it up, and then all of a sudden, it's mine. And sometimes I've interjected. I'm like, actually, it's mine. I'm the one that paid for it. Like, it didn't cost you anything. I gave it to you freely. And so I think we feel that way sometimes with what God has given us. And we say, but it's mine. And God says, is it though? <laughs> like, I'm the one that gave it to you. You need to live with an open hand. The whole field belonged to Boaz. He could do whatever he wanted with it. Um, we had, uh, Alicia had Shine Performance this past weekend, Thursday and Friday. They had their shows. Um, from where it was great, it really well. And they meet at Northland Mission Church. Really cool church. And she mentioned it, but it was in my notes before you mentioned it. Okay. <laughs> Pastor David, Pastor David, the guy that pastored that church, is amazing. And he is extremely generous. He holds that church with an open hand. Uh, there is always things going on at that church. Always. Uh, you guys meet there like six months out of the year, at least, every Monday night. And then they have bands, and they have soccer teams, and they have Boy Scout troops that meet there other nights of the week. And of course, they have Bible studies and church events. There is something going on there all the time. And he's given you like three sets of keys or something. He's like, just lock up when you're done. I'm like, when we get a building, I want to be like that. Can I be like, am I just going to make copies of keys and just be like, just lock up when you're done? This guy lives generously, and God has blessed them, and he's protected all of that. It's a really cool way, and I admire that, the way that he lives with an open hand. Uh, it's kind of like the hymn, and if I would have thought ahead, I would have had you guys prepare um, that, that old hymn. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Right? Great is thy faithfulness. Not our faithfulness. Great is his faithfulness unto us. All right. Verse 17. And so she gleaned in the field until evening, and then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley, which is about 25 to 30 pounds. That's a lot of barley. You think about just these little kernels, and just sitting there with a stick, just, you know, knocking them off the stalks. I picked up a bag of dog food yesterday that was 16 pounds. Like, twice that, and she's just carrying it all the way home. Okay, she took it up, and she went into the city. 
And her mother-in-law said, where in the world have you been gleaning today? She brought out what she had and she gave it to her mother, what was left over from being satisfied. So this next point is caring. Ruth threshed out the gate of the brain, which amounted to about 25 to 30 pounds. Um, Boaz had provided extremely generously to her. Um, but I think that it's interesting because although she had gotten more than she probably could have dreamed of, she still had to carry it home. I mean, everything that he had done, he could have put it on a cart, he could have put it on a donkey and had one of, her ser one of his servants carry it back for her, but she had to pick it up and carry it back. And I think that there's an important principle there. Remember back in Galatians, we talked about in chapter six, how there's a big difference between bearing one another's burdens and carrying our own load. Um, let's read it together back in Galatians 6. Let's see if I can find it real quick. Galatians chapter 6. This is in verse 4 after we talked about um, carrying each other's burdens. But let each one test his own work, and then his reasonably boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each one will have to bear his own load. Uh, the words Paul uses here, two different words, one for burden and one for load. And the burdens are those things that have been thrust upon us, things that have happened to us that are going to be crushing unless somebody else steps in. So in those circumstances, we walk up beside our brothers and sisters and we help them bear those burdens. But then we all have an individual load to bear. And it was kind of that word there is more like um, a bag, like a backpack. And we all have that to carry on our own. Uh, fairly straightforward. I've mentioned this guy a couple times, Jordan Peterson. He's, an, uh, he's an, uh, a lecturer, and he goes around and he speaks, and his largest audience is young men. And he tells them things that seem pretty self-evident. He says things like, get out of bed in the morning, you know, clean your room, get a job, pay your bills on time. And all these young men are like, oh, yeah, man, I didn't think about that. <laughs> it's very straightforward, but it's very practical. And in a society where we like to shift the blame or shift the responsibility to someone else, you know, it's not my problem, it's not my job, it's not my fault. Um, sometimes we need to be told very straightforward uh, that there's work for us to do. The Bible says a lot about putting our hand to the plow and doing the work. I mean, God gives the birds their food, but he doesn't throw it in their nests, okay? Paul writes to the Philippian church in chapter 2, and he's talking to them about being a servant and being like Christ. And he says, you know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And we're not saved by works. So what does that mean? It means that we're supposed to be obedient to his commands. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, right? Not the strong suggestions. We didn't get the 10 recommendations. We got the 10 commandments. And so there are things that we have to do. We need to work Jesus's teachings into our lives. This is, once we're saved, we're sanctified, but it's also a process of sanctification, of taking those things that he has told us and forming habits and working those into our lives. But the most important thing that we're supposed to carry is our cross. Of course, in Luke 9, Luke 9, 23, talking to his disciples. And he says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my, my sake will save it. How often should we pick it up? Daily. 
right? Every day. Who wants to sign up for that? I mean, the cross is where we go to die. That is the Christian life. That's what we're called to, to deny our flesh, to carry our cross. That is the thing that kind of dogs you daily. What is that thing that chases you down, that, you know, bugs you, that the enemy is trying to trip you up with, uh, the selfishness that's inside of us? That is the thing that is our cross. And we need to pick it up and we need to set it down, set that flesh down on the cross and let the work that Jesus has done be worked into our lives. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say crucify yourself daily. It's impossible to crucify yourself. We're just supposed to carry the cross, pick it up, walk it up the hill, lay down on it, and let God do His work in us through the Spirit as He changes us into the image of His Son. We're called to do the work of carrying the cross. There was a group of people that came to Jesus one time and they said, listen, we want to do the works of God. What works must we be doing? And Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one whom he sent. So there is work for us to do, but we can't do any of it until we first believe. Uh, Jesus said, there's a lot of things you can do, but you can't please God unless you first have faith. And that is the first thing that we're supposed to do. Uh, there is an old legend about a man who was lost in the desert. And he's searching around for water. He's trying to find some rest. And he comes upon this old shack, this old broken down shack. And it doesn't even have a roof or windows or anything. But he goes in there to try to find some shelter from the sun. And he sees an old rusty water pump outside. And so he runs over there and he starts pumping the old rusty water pump. But nothing's coming out. And so he stumbles back to the shack and he sits down. And after a while he looks back out there and he sees a jug sitting next to the you know the pump and so he goes out there and he picks up the jug and there's a note written on it and it said you have to pour all the water in this jug friend into the pump to prime it you got to prime the pump if you want cool fresh water and so he pops the cork on the jug and sure enough it's full of water and then he has a choice to make he can drink this hot water and he'll survive or he can take a chance and he can pour it into the pump, prime the pump, on the hopes that there's going to be some cold, refreshing water come up. More water than he would need. And so he sits there and he looks at it. And so he reluctantly pours the water down, you know, the, the pump to prime the pump. And he starts pumping. And nothing's coming out. He's pumping and he's pumping. All of a sudden, a little bit of a dribble starts to come out. He keeps pumping. And pretty soon, there's water gushing out of the pump and he is refreshed and so after he's drank everything that he can he's got some left over and he fills the jug back up for the next person and he adds to the note he adds to the note he says it really works believe me you got to give it all away before you can get back in return and he had more than enough Ruth did the work and she carried it back and she gave what she had left over to Naomi because she freely received, she freely gave. Um, okay, next point is covenant. Verse 19. Verse 19, there you are. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed is the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked that day. And she said, His man's, This man's name is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. 
He is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now, this is the part of the story where the kinsman redeemer is revealed. Some translations say covenant redeemer. Uh, covenant redeemer. In covenant, uh, simply means promise. We see God's promises um, made, made visible in covenants in the Old Testament. And Boaz, obviously, as we've said, is a picture of our covenant redeemer in Jesus. The first question she asked is, where in the world did you glean today? And as I was studying, this is actually a phrase that Christians used to use when they would meet each other. They would say, where have you been gleaning today? Instead of saying, how are you doing? Which is just a rhetorical question, and most of the time we don't really want to know anyone. So, where have you been gleaning today? Basically, what have you been reading? What truth have you gotten from the Word? And I tell you what, that would change the way I came to church on Sunday if I knew that somebody was going to greet me and say, what have you been reading this week? That would change. Um, but a lot of us, a lot of Christians, not you guys, but a lot of Christians could talk a lot more about whatever series they're watching on Netflix or whatever movies come out or what's going on in the world today than they could about what they've been reading in the scripture. And so where have you gleaned today? Maybe we'll bring that back. <laughs> I don't know. Where have you gleaned today? But Naomi says, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Whose kindness? The Lord's kindness. The Lord's kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. We are told all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Joshua told the people of Israel as they were going to the promised land, he said, he will never leave you. He will not forsake you. You need to stay close to him because he's not going to leave you. And then Jesus, when he was taking off, when he was ascending back into heaven, he told his disciples, I will be with you always, even to the end of the world. He's not going to leave us or forsake us. So we've already talked about what a kinsman redeemer is. He was the guy that would you know, buy back property that had fallen out of the family. Uh, he was the guy that would avenge any wrongs. He was the one that could save them out of poverty. Uh, Naomi could have said, she could have said, that's fantastic. We have somebody who's going to supply our needs. Like, all right, we're going to be taken care of. That's great. Go back tomorrow. But she was hoping in a redeemer, somebody that could save them, not just provide for them, but save them out of their circumstance. God made a covenant promise, not just to provide for us practically, but also spiritually. Naomi saw, she believed, she had hope once she saw. Right? She saw physically. She saw all the grain that she brought back, and then she believed. Um, I'll believe it when I see it. Right? We live in the show me state. Show me. I'm not going to believe it until I see it. I'm not going to believe unless I can put my fingers in the holes in his hand and my hand in his side, is what Thomas said. We call him Doubting Thomas. He gets kind of a bad rap. I like Thomas. Thomas was the one, when they were in Bethany, and Jesus said, I got to go to Jerusalem. The disciples said, why would you go to Jerusalem? Like, they want to kill you there. And Jesus takes off. Actually, he's heading to Bethany because they just told him about Lazarus. And he's like, we got to go there. And he said, why are you going so close to Jerusalem? People want to kill you. And Thomas says, well, might as well go die with him. And he takes off. And Jesus appeared. The reason why Thomas didn't see him is because he was out. Everybody else is locked in the upper room. They're all scared. They're all hiding. When Jesus shows up, Thomas wasn't there. Where was Thomas? I don't know. He wasn't scared. He was out. And he gets a bad rap. Because <laughs> we call him Doubting Thomas. But he didn't believe until he saw it either, unfortunately. But I like, I like Thomas. He's brave. He's a little skeptical. 
All right, verse 21. And Ruth said to the Moab, Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz and gleaning until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Next point is counsel. Uh, interesting here because Ruth is not relaying the story accurately. Right? The counsel she got from Boaz was, stay next to my young women, not men. I mean, that might have been who she had her eyes on. You know, maybe she was looking at the young men thinking, I'm in a bad spot. Like, there's men out here. Maybe, maybe one of these can save me. She was getting ahead of God and looking for her own uh, solution. And then Naomi as well steers her back on track and says, no, 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 no. Stay with the young women. You're going to get in trouble if you go with the young men. And we all need people in our life, godly counsel, that can steer us back to the word when we get off track, when we try to get ahead of God, seek out people, be around people, be linked with people that are going to point you back to the truth, point you back to his word. Now, there's a saying that people get God's best when they let him decide, right? Don't try to force it on our own. So Ruth listens to the counsel of Boaz and her mother-in-law. There's a principle in the word uh, that runs all throughout the Bible, and it is mentoring. It is discipleship. It is uh, the young and the old being linked together. Um, you have Moses and Joshua. You have Elijah and Elisha. You got Paul and Timothy. You've got Peter and Mark. You have you know the older and the younger linked together. Um, young people have zeal. They get excited, but they ain't that smart. <laughs> and people who have lived a while have the knowledge, but they don't always have the vision anymore. And so the two need to be linked together. I think this is something that is sorely lacking in our culture and sorely lacking in the church where you have you know, people linked together for the kingdom, training up the next generation, helping keep them on track, pointing them back to the word. Michael talked about having an impact last week. And if we want to have, if we want our lives to have a lasting impact, then invest in the lives of others, right? Invest in the next generation. I think that's one of the reasons why I like having, when there's more kids here, when we have kids in for worship, I want them seeing and witnessing worship and what it looks like to worship and what it looks like to stand next to their parents and their brothers and their aunts and uncles and worship together. Um, and I would encourage young people, if you see others and you like the way that they're living it out, you know, those people really live out their faith. I like the way that, uh, that they have, you know, I like their marriage or whatever it is. Be intentional. Go seek those people out. You know, have that conversation. That's another seat that I could have used. Could use conversation. <laughs> have that conversation. Uh, my parents were very good about me. I didn't know this until after the fact, but sending people my way, right, to have conversations with me. Uh, and that's always a good thing, too, because, you know, they would say the same thing. I'd be like, oh, man, I think of that. And my parents were like, told them the same thing. So they sent other people into their life to give them counsel. Actually, I want you to go uh, get, the, get the other kids. Um, so we have these C's. We have communion. We need to spend time with the Lord. We need to spend time in his word. We need to pray. And then contribution. We need to live generously. We need to give outside of ourselves. Those people, I guarantee, if you keep your eyes open 
If you say, God, show me people today, put people in my path that I can contribute to, either spiritually, emotionally, even, you know, physically, um, show, show me them. And then Carrie, we uh, have been given to generously, uh, but we also have a lot to do on our own. We have work to do. We have a load to carry. And then covenant. We see our covenant redeemer exemplified in the life of Boaz. Uh, and if we keep that in front of us, God's promise, his covenants, then we can be filled with hope. We don't have to, um, you know, I'll wait until I see it in my life. It's already been provided for us, that covenant promise. He's made a way for us. And then counsel, seeking out wise counsel, people that can steer us back to the word, steer us back to the truth. And when we do these things, see zeal. <laughs> when we do these things, people will see the big C. They'll see Christ in our lives. Uh, a lot of times we want changes in our life uh, that are just temporary. Um, we want changes. But the only change that really matters is the one that happens in here. Because if it happens in here, it's going to change where we spend eternity. And that's the only change that really matters. Um, you know, things that happen to us in this life, um, they can be harmful. They can be hurtful. They're going to hurt. They're gonna, we're going to have pain. But it's temporary. Um, his salvation, what he offers, his comfort is eternal. So we get, we get, and I get it, we get wrapped up. I do too. Um, our dishwasher conked out on us yesterday. <laughs> Frustrating. But it's such a little thing. It's temporary. These are, Paul said, everything that's happening here is nothing compared to the glory that awaits when we get to heaven. And we're going to spend the next zillion years in heaven worshiping and not caring about anything that happened here. So it's light and momentary affliction is what Paul calls it. So what I'd like to do now is just take communion. So if you hadn't gotten...